Hi there, and welcome to Radical Talks, a podcast featuring conversations on the intersection of technology, the economy, politics, and culture. I'm Jordan Jacobs, co-founder and managing partner of Radical Ventures, a venture fund investing in entrepreneurs applying artificial intelligence and deep tech to improve lives, transform businesses, and create the future. This is the premier episode of Radical Talks, and we're starting with a bang. Recently, I sat down with Eric Schmidt. Eric was the CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011, and the executive chairman of Google in an alphabet from 2011 to 2017. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the macro impacts of the pandemic, how companies can navigate these challenging times, and how technology and society might look vastly different coming out the other side of this crisis. We talk about China, AI, and sidewalk labs. It's worth noting that this conversation took place before the widespread protests in the U.S. following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. I'd also like to point out that Eric is an investor in Radical Ventures. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with former Google and Alphabet CEO and Chairman Eric Schmidt. Thank you for joining us, Eric. And thank you for letting me be an investor. I'm happy to be working with you guys. First, let me start off by asking just how are you and your family? Everyone's fine. And uh, we've been practicing the four tools that you have, which are the same tools you had in 1918, which is wearing a mask, social distancing, wash your hands obsessively, and spend as much time outside as you can. So 100 years later, we're doing the exact same things we were doing. No no improvement in individual behavior choices. Not yet, anyway. Right. Hopefully soon. So let's get right into it. You know, in much of the Western world, we're now coming out of... uh, different degrees of lockdown, what should be the priority of governments now going forward? Well, let me editorialize first by saying that a naive liberal like myself would have assumed that when the globe faced the first unified enemy that it's ever had, an enemy that, that touches young and old, uh, every race, both sexes, every conceivable kind of person, saint, sinner, as you got it, that somehow the globe would unify against a common enemy that does not discriminate at all. Unfortunately, the reverse has occurred. And we find the process of deglobalization and the process of polarization in many countries getting much worse as a result of the pandemic. And the pandemic is not something that that you or I are responsible for, but we are responsible for our collective action to fight it. So I'm incredibly disappointed at the global overall response among countries and among our leaders. The first thing that you do when you elect a leader is elect them to keep you physically safe. And I'm concerned that we've had excess deaths and terrible suffering for those who have lived through it because we didn't move fast enough, because people can't do math, because people didn't understand uh, what was good and what was bad. You see this in countries like Brazil right now where they have the outbreak is proceeding very, very rapidly at sort of U.S. infection rates with a a terrible disagreement among the politicians. If you look at the history of Italy, the first three weeks when the outbreak in Lombardy was most violent and where the reproduction rate was two to three, doubling every two to three days, there were three weeks during that period where the political leaders of Italy could not agree. I don't need to describe the political situation in the United States. You're well aware of it. So against that backdrop, how do you think that, let's start with the U.S. government, how do you think the current situation looks in terms of response and what needs to happen next, in particular in the U.S. and then globally, in order to get us through the other side of this? 
Well, in order to solve this, this genuine horrific problem that we as, a, as humans face, we have to solve two problems simultaneously. One is a health problem. In the developed world, the health system largely met the challenge of potential being, potentially being overwhelmed. People forget that in early March, many countries were facing the combinatorics such that the health system would be overloaded, there would be no beds, people would be dying of heart attacks in the parking lot, and we've largely avoided that. That danger, by the way, is still ahead in the developing world, which is a separate conversation. In economics, it's also one of the things that's interesting about all the literature about pandemics is no one ever quite put the two together. But indeed, when everything shuts down, the human cost is enormous in economics. And there are many constituencies who don't have enough money to live through another week or month. In many countries, for example, uh, they literally in order, need to work in order to eat. And this is a health problem that we don't th I don't think people fully understood before the pandemic. So anyway, long way, long way of saying it, you have to solve them both. In the American system, the right answer is to have the states make the decisions. So that's a good outcome. However, the federal government needed and needs to be much more involved in both uh, advice as well as stimulative funding, because they're the ones that can produce the money. The states don't have the ability to do it. We've ended up in roughly the, the roughly the right place, but without the benefit of science and without the benefit of early federal intervention. And that's a, and when historians look at this, they'll say there was a month lost. And I'm not trying to make a political comment because Democrats and Republicans are both guilty on this. There are plenty of examples of Democratic leadership who also failed to act in that first month, early, roughly early February. Put another way, if you were sitting around in January looking at China, wouldn't you say, ha, huh, this is a virus that doesn't discriminate, and there's an awful lot of Chinese folks that are traveling internationally. That ultimately will be the judgment of history. Yeah, I agree with you. We've had this conversation, and we actually did another one of these with Dominic Barton, who was our advisor prior to be, being named the ambassador to China. Dominic and I started speaking early in January, and it seemed to me that there was clear evidence of what was going on. The world governments knew about it, and there was just a lack of action for reasons that seem still to be unexplained, but I agree with you. I think that in reflection, that's going to be the question. Just to hammer on the point, the United States woke up collectively as a government in early March, and they should have woken up a, year, a month earlier. And that month, just do the combinatorics. The early stages of this disease, the r naught is about four to five in dense cities. And that translates to a doubling rate of two to three, a doubling rate every two to three days. That is a wave of infection and death. It's extremely difficult to fight back on. It's a very, very hard problem. You'll notice, by the way, that the tech industry, who can do math, almost immediately all shut down. Right. And the tech industry was probably the first of the industries to collectively and sort of collectively, but also on their own, come to the right answer. And it was only later that other industries did it. Now, why? Maybe they didn't understand the math. Maybe they didn't get guidance. And I'm not blaming citizens because this is a case where experts should be listened to and should be followed. followed. Any other scenario that I can imagine where there was a thousand people dying a day would cause an enormous reaction. So I wonder what is wrong in the political systems where these kinds of death rates, by the way, the UK has a similar number uh, adjusted for their population. I wonder how that's okay. It, it shouldn't be okay. 
And what we need to do aggressively is get that number down in every state of the United States. We need to get it down in Canada and Europe and so forth and so on. Every one of those, it's easy to understand the problem. Fewer bullets, the bullet being the infection, means fewer, less suffering and less deaths. And to accomplish that, do you think we're gonna to have to go into a second, I mean, as infection rates rise, which they undoubtedly will when we open up, do we need to go into a, a lockdown again? Or is this really a question of adopting the Korean strategy of widespread testing and tracing, which we haven't been able to do in North America to the level they did in Korea or in Hong Kong or other places? It's important to understand the Asian countries, how they actually did it. So in Korea, for example, when they, they did very high amount of testing, highest in the world, which we have not done, Canada has not done. Second, when they found somebody, they would essentially quarantine them immediately and go through all their bank records and all their phone records and figure out everyone they came in contact with and then go uh, examine all the people. So it's a very aggressive contact tracing. That produced the quickest reduction in infection rates. It make, makes sense that it did so. It's very hard to see how in democracies that would be acceptable. And it's pretty clear watching the last month that it's not acceptable for whatever reason. So we've clearly made a trade-off that we are not willing to do that and we will accept a higher level of infection and death. Right? That, I'm just trying to be blunt. It's a, it's a trade-off and it's a trade-off that we as a society have made. What can we do given we're not going to do that? Well, the most obvious thing to do is to encourage and require masks in public places. Here's an example. It, it took the airlines to voluntarily require masks. The subways only recently required masks. That should have been done a month ago. So it seems to me it's pretty simple to understand. Scientists understand how the disease primarily is, is passed. It's passed in indoor spaces where there's an awful lot of exhalation, a lot of speaking, a lot of screaming, a lot of shouting and so forth. What are activities like that? So for example, call centers, there's a famous one in South Korea. Churches, there's a famous case in Seattle because of the choir. Uh, examples where there's a lot of breath and a lot of viral spread seem to be the worst cases. Think of those as hotspots. What we should do systematically is attack every one of those hotspots and that will materially show, slow the reproduction rate. I don't worry that people are out on the beach. I think it should be fine that they walk around and lie down on the beach. There's lots of wind on the beach. Uh, plus it's better to have them outside than inside. So government has done some things well. I mean, they stepped in very early with stimulus, if you believe that that's a, a solution to the economic problems. Given where we are now with this reopening kind of state by state um, and improvement in testing and tracing, still not where it needs to be, steadying of the stock market, but still 38 million people claiming unemployment benefits, what needs to be done in order to get the economy working again, get people back into their jobs in places where they're not gonna necessarily be able to go to their job or their job doesn't exist because the restaurant they worked at shut down. So what is apparent now, if you look at the numbers of infections and the, and the illness rates, this is becoming a disease of the elderly, 65 and up, and of course the, the outcomes there are really horrific, as well as a disease of people who serve us people who don't have the flexibility to do work from home, social distancing and so forth, of which there are many. And many of them are victims of, of the economics associated with that. So the 
U.S. government, I'll give a U.S. answer, has done a good job of putting liquidity into the markets, more than $3 trillion plus additional financing mechanisms and so forth, which got us through the first internal wave. The problem is that that money runs out in the next month. Many of the businesses that I'm familiar with had two to three months of capital, working capital, but they don't have six months. So that's why the urgency of getting the R not down so quickly. And with that urgency, then confidence would, would come back. So most people believe that places that are office buildings can be addressed through a combination of time shifting, changes in often behavior, taking teams and splitting them. You work in the office, you work at home because you have to work at home and because you have your kids. Uh, many people believe that the school situation can be addressed there are examples in Europe where the schools have restarted and they've done it with multiple shifts and with social distancing. And because kids don't, don't seem to get the diseases badly and so forth, it seems like a reasonable trade-off. Many people believe that the transportation issues can be addressed by, again, time shifting and de-densification. And in the case of retail, most people believe that much of that demand will be replaced by online. So if you follow that line of reasoning, what's left it turns out that entertainment and tourism are very difficult. If you look at airline, the airline industry, 90% of the demand is off. Um, if you look at hotels, hotels are roughly at 10% occupancy. Many of their occupants are people who are escaping the disease or they're frontline workers who want, don't want to see their families, et cetera. So we have a real problem restarting that part of the economy. And these are significant parts of the U.S. and global economy. They're not small. Um, there's an article, for example, today that California is a very large tourism state and there's nothing happening. So I don't think, it, I don't think people have a full answer to your question. My own view is that this is going to take a couple of years. So I have a number of questions coming out of that, including the political implications of it. But just to, to back up for a second, um, you mentioned that the service economy is is going to be hurt. So those are people working in tourism in restaurants and hotels, et cetera, which as you said, is a huge employer, particularly in the US, but in a lot of countries. What, what can be done about, or what, what is the right thing to do with those uh, organizations and those employees? Is it to give them a universal basic income? Is it to bail out the companies themselves or allow them to go through bankruptcy? I mean, there's a lot of debate now and it's turning into a political debate about how to handle the stimulus for the people and the organizations that employ them. Well, the first political question is, is there going to be a further stimulus? And in the American system, there seems to be, to be a debate over that. Right. Let's assume that eventually there will be a, additional money. Many people believe the best way to solve this is to give additional money to firms to keep their people hired. This is generally, this is generally the, the PPP solution. It's debatable, but it makes sense to me that you'd rather make it easier for people to stay in their jobs rather than have them be laid off and have them looking for one. Because hopefully this, the, the V shape and will recover. And before we get too depressed, remember that before this, the United States had the lowest unemployment that it's had in 50 years. And now it has the highest unemployment it's ever had in 70 years, 80 years. So it shows you how fast the swing was. So the American economy, broadly speaking, was able to employ all of these people. So there's reason to think that if you can sort of, if you will, lubricate the, the fall a little bit, whatever the correct word is, soften the blow a little bit, that the economy is flexible enough that the new jobs that will be created will be good enough to allow that employment to continue. 
The problem is if you don't do what I'm suggesting, then you have to come up with some other solutions such as loan forgiveness, uh, you forcing people not to be able, not to be evicted. And those are very difficult programs to implement in a fair way. So stepping back from that, you then have additional complications on the global front where you have China, for example, announced the other day, 1.4 trillion of um, stimulus being put into technology. So they, they seem to be taking an approach of, we're not just going to rebuild the economy the way it was, but we're going to rebuild an economy for the future. And with the stated goal of overtaking the U.S. as the world's technological power and ultimately becoming the economic power as a result. A lot of that money going into AI, which is near and dear to both of our hearts, which I'd like to talk about as well. But is, do you think that looking back on this pandemic in 10 or 20 years, this is the inflection point when China becomes the world's economic and technological superpower? I think it's possible to, to well, it, it, a possible outcome is that this is in fact an even bigger change, that this is the beginning of a new epoch. And when I say a new, new epoch, I mean a new way in which people live and work. The way this would, would, this scenario would unfold is that in this particular scenario, the jobs that are analog jobs that we're used to will largely not return. The digital jobs of one kind or another will become large and numerous and people will be hired from analog to digital. In two months, you've seen an acceleration of digital trends that you could have expected over a five or 10 year period as people become more comfortable with tele telework, telehealth, that sort of thing, uh, online shopping. If you think about it, going to the doctor, it's just so much more convenient to do a, a video call with your doctor. I mean, you know, people really love driving to the doctor, waiting at the doctor, waiting more at the doctor, waiting in the doctor's office, talking to the, to the lady behind the counter, right? talking to the doctor for five minutes, then going to talk to the lady again, and then getting back in their car. It's just so much more efficient to get into the, to do it, to do it in a video way. And the tools are getting better. I mean, you can see the point. So for many positive reasons, you can, uh, you can imagine these style changes are advanced. In the case of China, China has a deliberate top-down management of its economy and a deliberate strategy, which they published. And what China has said is that they wish to be leaders in the following, AI, quantum, high energy, transportation, software engineering, and a number of others. This is my entire world, right? Your entire world. So we have a competitor in the sense of a, com uh, a competitive inventor in the form of China, and yet we collectively do not have a coherent answer to this. Furthermore, China appears to me to be re-entering the world economy more aggressively after its extremely aggressive steps that it took during, during the pandemic. So we're in a situation where China is both likely to emerge quicker and stronger, partly because of the steps it took, partly because of the manufacturing industries that it controls, while the, the, the Western world is still grappling with the consequences of political inaction and lack of clarity in what we should be doing. That's not a good thing. I have, I and a number of other people have worked very, very hard to try to get R&D funding higher. And the, that's, the good news is that's what everybody has talked about. The bad news is that the vast majority of the bailout money went to people who were in dire need of, of getting food on the table, which I understand. Does it leave us though with a situation where we're basically gonna see this technology bifurcation. We've got a Chinese stack and a Western stack, potentially led by the US. And everyone who's not aligned with one or the other has to choose which stack they're going to use. I'm extremely worried about the cost of decoupling. And I prefer to view China as a competitor, not an adversary to the death. 
it's important to understand the difference. A competitor is somebody who you talk to. A competitor is somebody who you might tr uh, collaborate with in certain areas, say safety and so forth and so on. An adversary that you fight to the death, you don't, tr you don't talk with them, you view them as trying to hurt you and you try to harm them. The difference between adversary and competitor is very profound. The current language on both sides of China and the US are leading it more into an adversarial relationship. It's a gradual process and it's not done in a conceptual framework that makes sense to me. We depend on China, China depends on us. We made those decisions decades ago. I would much prefer to have good relationships with China when they violate the law, you know, appropriate, deal with the appropriate uh, legal procedures to prevent it, but not give up everything. And the simplest example here is that there are many Western technologies that China uses which they're busy trying to duplicate. They've not been successful at it. The more you cut off access to China for those technologies, the more likely they are to build these technologies, the most obvious being operating systems and chips, where they won't have any dependence, and then they, they will naturally diverge. When the internet is naturally two internets, a Chinese-ish one and a Western-ish one, I'm using those very non-technically just to give you a feeling of how they would feel, they don't come back. They don't become one. We've really benefited by having a common interchange platform. And I worry very much that the cost of decoupling is not, is not worth the price. And I'm not referring to the very significant danger of further decoupling in terms of surprises. Many uh, people who work in, in foreign policy and history are worried that the way conflict starts is it, start, it starts with an, a misunderstanding and natural suspicion, national suspicions, which are certainly being inflamed. I, speaking as an American, Americans all understand everything that the US is doing to China as a response to things that they are doing. How do the Chinese perceive it? They perceive it, it seems uniformly, as an attempt by the America to keep them down. And they have a historical view that the West kept them down for about 150 years, and there's nothing that they're going to do that will allow that to occur again. And so how do we overcome, how do we change their minds? How do we change minds in the West and have a reproachment, or as you say, um, a competitive, I mean, the way I think about competition is you're playing the same game by the same rules. So there is a framework there in which to have this interchange. How do you establish, like go back to that or establish that going forward rather than have this, what seems to be this disintegration in, in every way, including communication? This is the area for diplomacy. And right now you have on the Chinese side, the president is using the, the weakness that he's perceived in the pandemic and he's countering that with the strength in terms of social order and fighting, fighting outside. In the United States, you see the same similar things with the president. The great leaders understand that they have to do things which are politically expedient, but they don't do things which underlie or break the underlying fabric of success of the world. And we need great leaders now. So uh, let, let's dig into that one a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that has undoubtedly made the U.S. the world leader, for the, certainly since the Second World War, but let's even go back to after the First World War, is the alliances that it built and the organizations that it built to create structure uh, around the world, where it was taking a leadership position, whether it was through the United Nations in World War II, Bretton Woods in terms of a currency, and many other like trade organizations, World Health Organization, et cetera. There seems to be 
a retrenchment from that at the moment, not just by the US, but by many countries, which leaves a bit of a vacuum or a large vacuum. How do we, how do we reverse that in a world that has been moving now toward deglobalization and focused on, because some of these issues are political, some of these issues are just how do we make our supply chain more resilient domestically so we're not dependent on someone else? How do you decouple the issues and solve the ones that need to be solved by creating more supply chain, more manufacturing domestically in order to have the PPE you need in hospitals or the vaccine production or the chip production versus the implications of the political implications of that decoupling, basically creating a fracture in this, this vacuum? So when you look at the United States' success, it has indeed been because of its alliances, starting with Canada. And I mean, we can go on and on about the importance of alliances. The only problem is that politically, nobody seems to want to talk about anything other than domestic issues. What's interesting is the same thing is also occurring in Europe, where the dream of European integration seems to have been pushed aside by domestic concerns, legitimates over the virus, and also us versus them about the neighbor because the neighbor has a greater disease or what have you. And so my guess is that we have to go through this decoupling phase. Hopefully it won't damage anything permanently, although I, I worry a great deal about it. And that then we have an opportunity to recouple. And what I would suggest is that the smart people in this area should get together and try to figure out a way of recoupling our global economies in such a way that the tensions that have been created in globalization, which include the loss of jobs, the loss of income, the mistreatment, and so forth and so on, can be mitigated in some other way. We're dealing, part of the fight against globalists, and we collectively on this call are all basically globalists. We all operate in global markets. We travel around the world. We care a lot about the globe, is that there are many people who were not benefiting or perceived that they were not benefiting from globalization, right? So the person points at the job loss rather than the fact that the Walmart prices are so low and they blame China. And, and that, that culture has to get shifted and we have to come up with better ways. But it, it goes to people far smarter in these areas than me to say, how do we want to stitch it back together in a way that's more resilient? If we're able to do that, we will get through this. It'll become like 1918. Everyone will complain about it and we'll move forward. If we don't get through this, then we're in a period of relatively lesser productivity, relatively greater dynamic and negative political work, a loss of community trust, and obviously a greater danger from a military perspective. Okay, so I think I'd agree with you that we, we obviously want to avoid those implications. It seems like, as you say, it's, they're going to be, we're going to be heading down that road to a degree over the next few years at least. Sitting in Canada, we're in an unusual position of not only have we been dependent on an international supply chain, but we've been dependent on, on our relationship with the United States, which in this new world may not be as interested in reciprocity or openness. For example, there was a, an issue where Canadian government was trying to procure masks and US government stepped in and said, wait, no, 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 we need that supply in, from the US. We can't take those masks. It, it ended up that a lot of this, the uh, original material for them came from a pulp and paper mill in Canada. So it turned out that you, you need it to go both ways. But how does a, a relatively small middle power like Canada deal with that. We, we clearly cannot build our entire supply chain from start to finish for this country. 
how should we look at that kind of disintegration of globalism? It's important to remember that Canada is the United States' largest trading partner at many, many different levels, including perhaps the most important, which is intellectual. And so I am satisfied that Canada will reemerge as America's greatest friend and vice versa, uh, because it's such a natural alignment. I'm not worried about that specific case. What I would suggest is that the way the world will start to recouple will be in through trust zones. There's this disturbing view that that multilateral relationships don't work and bilateral relationships are the only way to work. I say it's disturbing because it's relatively inefficient. You know, if you do the cross product of 197 countries, it takes you a long time to get that many links between all 197 countries, 197 times 196, whatever the number is. So what I would suggest is that ultimately this is going to start country by country with the biggest and obvious trading partners with the United States in my view, the first such alliance would be with Canada, and the next one would probably be with countries in Europe and the UK, and perhaps Japan. And that's the most likely way in which the, the, the rebinding occurs over the next year. To, to come back to a local level, a project that was very close to your heart, Sidewalk Labs. So Sidewalk, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, or were joining us from outside Toronto, won't be familiar with it potentially, an alphabet subsidiary that was focused on building smart cities and technologies that support smart cities. The first partnership was in Toronto to build a undeveloped parcel of land just off of downtown that for those of us who live here forever has been under a question of how we're going to turn that into a usable piece of land. So there was a partnership to develop it that proceeded over a number of years, a lot of excitement, also some criticism and question concerns about how to use uh, the data that comes out of it, what the IP relationship is, much of which was solved to, it seems everyone's satisfaction in the last six months. Last month, Sidewalk pulled out of the partnership citing the pandemic. Could you maybe, you were there at the beginning of it. Could you maybe just talk about that, how you feel about it? It's obviously uh, been a very big issue for Torontonians for a long time. And I think it's split people's view on the development of the, you know, smart cities and what that means and then data capture and how we deal with these things. I can speak for myself. I cannot speak for Google on this because I'm not there anymore. I can tell you that I myself am extremely disappointed with this outcome. Um, I had the privilege of traveling to Toronto many times and along with the provincial governor, mayor and so forth, announced that a series of events of uh, the notion of putting together this incredible smart city project on what was undeveloped land. I don't understand what happened. What I do know is that there were concerns expressed about Google's use of data. Google gave a series of statements that could not have been clearer about how data was going to be used. There was an organized opposition, and I don't understand what else happened. The cost of this is not small, the cost of this loss. And let me just remind everybody that part of the way society moves forward is by building infrastructure more airports, more trains, uh, faster trains from Waterloo to Toronto, that sort of thing. Um, we benefit from that connectivity. In the case of prime land along the water like that and a well-funded capitalist, capitalist that wants to develop it, I would try hard to work with them to make it work. And the cost of it is that, that land will not be developed and land that's not developed and opportunities like that is time lost. However long it takes for that land to ultimately be developed in a different way is lost economics. 
he's lost economics in terms of jobs and development and well-being and so forth that would have been benefited Canada as a whole. So I just say, all I can say is that I'm disappointed. I hoped very hard for a different outcome. One of the things that emerged from the process was a very, I thought, ultimately valuable discussion about in a, a situation where you have smart cities, data collection, ownership of the data, uses of the data, what can be done with it? I think there is, for those of us in the world of artificial intelligence, there, we, I think, tend to view data as an opportunity to unlock benefits for wider society and individuals in case of personalized medicine, for example. There tends to be this um, reactionary view that data can be used in a harmful way. It can you know, empower organizations to act in their own interest, not necessarily in, in society's interest. It, did it require in reflection a different approach to at, at the very least communicating about data and how it would be used? And is, is that something that you think is instructive going forward for the next attempt to build a smart city? I don't know what more we could have done. Again, I, I'm not there and I don't know the actual transaction at the end, but we made all the appropriate assurances um, early in the process. And furthermore, the government could have easily passed laws or restrictions that would have been appropriate to the time. So because of a failure to come together to jointly solve what was a perception, if not a real problem, for whatever reasons, because there was no such agreement, the country, the city, Google obviously have all, have all lost. And an opportunity to do what was proposed in Toronto by Sidewalk was a very significant and relatively rare opportunity to do something incredibly innovative. I'm sure that Sidewalk will do fine in other areas. I'm sure that Toronto will recover, but it's a real loss and I want to express my disappointment. Let's just focus on the AI piece for a moment. Google is obviously one of the if not the leading company in the world in developing and using AI for its, for its own business. You were a very early proponent of it and remain that way. You're, you've been very involved um, on the political front now with AI and getting government to acknowledge the value of it and having a cohesive strategy. Can you just talk about your perception of the Canadian and the Toronto ecosystem in particular? It's, it's in its place on the world stage. Well, curiously, to me, Toronto, Montreal, and Waterloo appear to have appeared appear to have shown up as the world's leading spot for this activity, probably outside of some combination of Beijing um, and maybe Silicon Valley. There are more startups, there are more investments in this area than anywhere in the world. So it looks like, and I told your prime minister this, that Canada will be the world's leader in AI at this at this point because of this very smart investment. Um, it's also, I should also mention that the Vector Institute, which you know well, was created in a public-private partnership. And there, there's all sorts of reasons. There may be also reasons that Canada has served as a host for international talent, who the United States would, not foolishly, would foolishly not allow into, into our country, and they should have, but I'm not really sure. But Canada deserves credit for identifying this opportunity early and I think that the benefit to globalized Canada, right, in terms of leadership is profound. One of the criticisms we've had historically is that we're great at creating technology, but not necessarily commercializing and building big companies. So when we conceived of Vector and I wrote the business plan to have companies and government back it, the, the goal there was to bring in companies, some of whom are amazing users of AI and developers of it, many of whom are not, and to bring them into proximity so they would understand 
what they they learn what they don't know essentially and be able to adopt it into their businesses. What do you think though we need to do as a country differently? For someone who's led one of the largest companies in the world, you've you've had a very clear focus on Canada. The company's invested a lot in Canada. You've been here many times, in particular in particular to Toronto and Waterloo. And I think what do we need to do differently to take those ideas and like the research that comes out of a place like Vector turn into a company that grows into a world leading company that is based here but is a global company? Um, that's of course the hardest question of all. I will be satisfied if the next great set of AI inventions come out of Canadian researchers just like the original set. I think there's every reason to believe that we're very early in AI in terms of the algorithms and the tools. And I'm sure that if there's something truly new invented by the young men and women that are coming out of your universities, in particular Montreal and Toronto and Waterloo, you'll do well. There's something special about the, the, the water where you are in terms of being able to do that. Now, so let's imagine you've got a 500 person company that's really distinctive and they're all Canadian based. Then you're going to have to come up with a globalization strategy. What Israel has done is they have ultimately figured out that the majority of the company is run out of New York typically, and the technical work is done in Israel. And the reason they do that is that at some level, when you start getting to really big companies, there's not enough executives in their country that can run these large companies, whereas you can find them in these larger markets such as the United States. So a probable outcome is invention and early prototyping and early success in Canada, and then a shift, if you will, within the companies where a significant amount of the headcount of the company is actually outside of Canada I'm suggesting New York because it's the same time zone, but you could pick another example. And, and the reason you do that is not because Canadians aren't smart. In fact, they're indeed very, very smart, but that you need a cohort of hundreds of managers who have lots of experience doing the kind of stuff that you're describing. It's possible that the Israel scenario will, will be the success scenario for Canada. The Israel scenario is so successful that more than half of their exports are software and technology-based. So it gives you a sense of how powerful this model can be. One potential, so I agree with you that one of the things that has been deficient here certainly is experienced people to scale up businesses. So not necessarily the engineers who come out of University of Waterloo or University of Toronto or the AI scientists, but salespeople and the people um, to understand how to build a big business out of that technology. Does the, the shift to work from home which we are starting to see now. So Twitter and Shopify in particular announced permanently a move toward a work from home scenario as their central model. Does that enable companies potentially who happen to be located with a head office in Toronto or Waterloo or Montreal or Vancouver to take advantage of that talent from abroad without having to get them to quit their job and move to a different country or be a remote worker, which is unusual. Now suddenly it's, it's, everyone's a remote worker. Does that change the opportunity for country, companies outside the Valley or New York? It does. It may or may not be successful. I famously banned work from home when I was running Google. So you know my bias, which is I want people to be in the hallways talking to each other. I think these small pods, all those casual interactions are extremely valuable. Now, clearly my prejudice about work from home is not correct for now. Right? You, I have to modify it. I'm still one of these people who believes that companies are not just going to dissipate into everyone sitting at home. Plenty of people who want to work in an office and they're more productive in an office. 
and that there'll be some sort of new normal. My guess, and this is my guess, is that uh, work from home will allow individual contributors to develop greatly. It's perfectly possible that very, very well-motivated, very focused individuals can work even more productively at home because they have fewer interruptions, they can control their environment, and they're very, very productive. But for an awful lot of people, and especially managers, they thrive on people around them, and that the distance of people will ultimately reduce their productivity. So work from home is probably good for software productivity. It's probably bad for developing the next generation of leaders to lead all those people. So I think it, it is going to be an interesting period now where we watch this happen in a almost mandatory way for the next six months or a year, perhaps. And then we see which companies come out the other side of it. Do you think it changes some behaviors like sales, for example, where you've got the road warriors who have always made a habit of being on a plane every day, going and seeing the next customer? Does, does that shift where both the salesperson and the person who's being sold to start to accept that this is going to happen over Zoom? Yeah, let's, let's consider the changes that the digital transformation will, will bring. First, call centers. Do you really need to have everybody in the same room talking? And you know how dangerous that scenario is. You can probably do remote call centers and the support functions for businesses can probably be done, be done remotely. That will yield headquarters, but headquarters with fewer people in them. That's not a bad thing. Let's think about programmers. Well, we've already talked about that. Some programmers have been socially distancing for years. That's the standard joke. They prefer to be on their own. Maybe that's okay. What about marketing? Some creative people work better on their own. Some people, creative people work better on the teams. Sales is really a function of whether the customer will buy remotely. I think that is one of the big changes that will occur. I think business travel will, will be permanently affected because you frankly don't need, need to make these trips. And especially now with the concerns over the, the virus, are you really willing to fly to China to quarantine for 14 days to get a deal to then come back to the United States or Canada and quarantine for another 14 days? Is a, is a literally a one month sales cycle for one call, something where you could do, do it virtually? It makes sense to me. What other industries, obviously there's gonna be changes all over the place. You've talked a little bit about e-commerce and healthcare. Where do you see permanent change coming out of this experience? What are the industries where you see shift that's just not gonna go back to the way it was? Well, the obvious ones are telehealth, telemedicine and so forth, because you just don't need to. In retail, it's pretty clear that the acceleration of electronic commerce is going to continue and that you're going to see more and more hybrid retail and store, retail and, and remote shopping. So you can imagine the result of that is a smaller number of high-end stores or more virtual stores or different delivery mechanisms. So the consequence of all of this is a much more robust delivery me mechanism and much more distribution, and that's all makes th making things more efficient. I don't think we know yet what will happen to entertainment. I also don't think we know what will happen to the creative arts and things like that, but they will be significantly affected. One of the questions is whether residential college and generally these sort of uh, things that we all go through in our lifetimes will really change. Many people believe that residential colleges will reopen, but in a different way with all sorts of restrictions. Uh, so for example, undergraduate residential college may be delayed, but graduate students typically live off-site, and that is, that is po possible. So it's, it's of those kind. What's interesting to me is we're doing a mass experiment where people are coming to accept that this is a reasonable way to communicate. 
And that I don't think goes away. One of the interesting experiences as a parent is suddenly having kids who go to school, not go to school, but go to school on their computers and seeing the very different delivery of education at different schools and different school systems. Do you think in, in a case of, for example, university level, where places like um, Cambridge, for example, has already said that next year is the entire school year is going to be delivered online. Does it create a situation where it increases access because no matter where you live, as long as you have an internet connection, you could potentially go to Stanford or Cambridge or University of Waterloo? And if that is the case, do we end up with this bifurcation where the, the kind of brand name universities end up winning and everyone else ends up losing to a degree? So that's one scenario, but it relies on some assumptions that are not obvious to me. I'm not aware of universities dramatically increasing their September classes for for the fall based on the fact that they're going virtual. And all of the universities that I'm familiar with are struggling with, I want to continue our current model, but I want to do so safely. So we haven't seen the scenario that you described yet. It's a possibility, especially if the pandemic continues, that there's no virus and so forth, but I think it's less likely than, more li- less likely than not. I think a more likely scenario is a, a, a consolidation around winners. So whenever you have an economic shock, there's all sorts of choices, and it's always the case that the strongest players consolidate and they emerge stronger when the shock is over. This was true in 2008, 2009, when I was running Google. It's true as a general rule. So for example, if you look at at retail in the United States, Amazon, Walmart, Target, and a couple of others are doing really, really well. And a number of others are in terrible straits. That's an example of this phenomenon. So with universities, I would expect that at least for ones that are doing online education, there will emerge a set of ones that are the ones that everyone goes to it does not then follow that that replaces residential college experience. You joined Google in 2001 when it was clearly on a great trajectory, but not anywhere remotely close to the company that has become. In my experience, many founders are reluctant to step aside and allow people who are better than them or more experienced than them uh, or have different skill sets than them to step in and scale up the vision that the founders have. What was it about Sergey and Larry that, that allowed them to make that decision with their baby, Google? And what about them made you decide that this was the right company to go into from, I'm sure, among many different options? Well, in my case, when I met Larry and Sergey, I knew I wanted to work with them. It was just a matter of what the, the, the context was. And we worked it out. We had similar backgrounds. They were just much younger than I. They seemed incredibly smart. And at the end of the day, it was a great partnership. There are other examples of such partnerships, for example, Meg Whitman at eBay that had worked out very well. I think the real answer to Leanne's question is that the Canadian startup scene is just not old enough in the sense of years of experience and producing the kinds of executives that I'm describing. In Silicon Valley, there are legions of executives that were at this company and that company and this company that are available now for this kind of a position. In Beijing, by the way, they're now beginning to get to that, which is the other large hotspot of this. They're beginning to see it in New York as well. I think it's a question of you're still in the second phase and uh, Silicon Valley and Beijing are in the third or fourth phase. 
But in other words, what I'm trying to tell you is it will happen, but it takes time. The only other way I know of to address this is to recruit Americans to relocate to Canada, which many of my friends are proposing because they don't like what's going on in the United States. And, and certainly we, that has happened a lot in the last few years, in no small part due to a visa that the Canadian government created at the instance of, or at the insistence of uh, the tech community, which allows us to hire within two weeks. So it's an extraordinary achievement of your government. Yeah, I do think that everyone in tech certainly is enormously appreciative of that one and everyone's benefited from it. One of the other things that is unique about Canada, uh, and I just want to touch on this briefly, is in health in the healthcare space, we have this competitive advantage. It's a happy byproduct of a single payer system where we have all the data that is theoretically owned by one organization and a very diverse population. So you can derive better data out of it to do different things with it. In looking at the applications of AI in healthcare, which I know you were involved with both at Google and you continue to be involved with in many different ways, does a country like Canada, which is smaller in population but has the benefit of the single-payer system, can we punch way above our weight, um, which is an argument we have made, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about that in healthcare. So, so let me make a slightly more obnoxious comment. For the countries that have single-payer systems, why have you not already figured out how to do all of this? It's very difficult when you're in the United States to get the data that you need because of all sorts of laws. So there must be something wrong with the single payer system that you have because you're not unleashing the enormous potential that is possible with the data in Canada. I'm going to push you hard on this. If you have the kind of data you have, you should be able to do early detection of diseases. You should have extraordinary help for the doctors when people go into, into, into hospitals. You should have much better monitoring and prediction of disease as a result. And yet no country has that. And I think that that is the greatest opportunity in front of Canada and in many countries where you have access to the data. So there must be something wrong with what you're saying. There must be some limitation or perhaps people haven't figured it out because the single largest opportunity for impact in a positive way with AI is in health. It, because frankly, we're all the same biologically to first order. And the AI's ability to produce, using very complicated um, and unclear patterns and statistics to predict outcomes is far better than that of the best doctors. To take that a bit further, it is an opportunity to build on the back of a diverse population base, cures, cures and other products that you can then sell to the rest of the world, which not every single payer system has the benefit of. Those with the, a narrow genetic background can't do that as effectively in exporting a cure for cancer. And I think, I think you know my view, which is this should be the largest export from Canada. Right. So you are the chair of the U.S. National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which put out a 100-plus page report at the end of last year, um, which in many ways mirrors uh, the pan-Canadian AI strategy that we worked on creating about three years ago, um, which was the first one adopted uh, by national government. First, is that going to be effectively the U.S. national AI strategy? And second, there was a, a significant focus on ethical use of AI and the importance of being a leader in that space. Where do you see the future of ethical applications of AI and the regulatory regimes internationally to make sure that AI is used in an ethical way? Well, it's interesting. Uh, so the commission that, of which I'm privileged to be a leader reports to the, to the U.S. Congress and we hope that it will establish the ground rules for national security and artificial intelligence. It won't be an overall US AI strategy, but it will be about national security. And put another way, um, 
the Republicans are very concerned about China and China's threats to the United States. The Democrats are very concerned about national security and cyberspace and so forth and so on. So you have a union of both parties where, where they both have very legitimate concerns and we're trying to come up with ways of addressing that. The most important recommendations that we're making have to do with more funding in critical areas, in particular cyberspace, cyber war, all of the kind of the detection and algorithms that you could imagine. One of the things that we studied was the question of leadership. And at the moment, the West and in particular Canada and the United States are still ahead of China and we want to remain so for all sorts of obvious reasons. And the second thing we learned is that pretty much every country has an AI strategy with respect to, with respect to ethics, but they differ in details. So the good news is I think countries are publishing their ethics strategies. The bad news is that they differ in some degree, but I think that's okay. And over time, I think that there will be a Western consensus emerge and there'll probably be a, an Asian consensus that will be different. I'm going to end with one last question. Um, you know, as I think people in the world technology world, we are generally optimists about the future. What you see all kinds of different technologies around the world. You see all kinds of different opportunities. What excites you most right now? You know, the, uh, the pandemic is horrific, but one of the things that has happened is it has accelerated biology in ways that are very, very hard to quantify. Uh, if you look at the sort of fervor that's going on in science, um, Archive, which is the computer science and AI repository, is one, but BioArchive is the other. And all of the normal patterns of publish and wait and wait a year and so forth have been thrown around away with this enormous race to improve biology, synthetic biology, and so forth. So I'm very optimistic that when this is over, we'll be in a much, much better shape in terms of our understanding of biology, synthetic biology, drug discovery, uh, antivirals and that sort of thing. And that's good for the world. Great. Well, we are up on time and we want to thank you very much for joining us, Eric. It's been right. thank, thank really a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Radical Talks. For more on AI and deep tech, go to radical.vc. There you'll find original insight and analysis, and you can sign up for Radical Reads, our weekly newsletter.